Open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. This morning, I want to address the question, does God love everybody? This is not an easy subject to address because the whole world is united against me. The imaginations of your heart are united against me. My own heart is against me. And the devil wants us to believe that God loves everybody because if he does, the sacrifice of Christ means nothing or little. There's no motive for living a holy life and many other problems that come from that false doctrine. Many people think me sac quite sacrilegious for even addressing the issue the way I'm going to address it. They think the matter is so settled that you shouldn't even ask or answer the question. It's obvious. God loves everybody. They assume it with a great deal of arrogance. Right. But they don't prove it. And it doesn't make any sense. But we're going to ask the question, and we're going to answer the question. Amen. We're attacking the very bedrock, and for many, the whole structure of their whole knowledge of God. All they know about God is he is a great big piece of cotton candy that loves everybody. That's all they know about him. And we are attacking that bedrock and the whole structure that rests on it that they think is the knowledge of God. This is all that most people know and think that they want to know about God, that he loves everybody. All else is subordinate and made to serve this theme that God loves everybody. They think it's horrible to limit God's love. For they presume that man is lovable and that God has to love. That's because they're in worship, they worship themselves and they're in love with themselves. No one that objects to this sermon, listening to it by audio tape or viewing it by videotape, no one listening to this sermon cares about the character of God if they do not like this message. All they care about is losing their needed love from that God because they think they are lovable and they think that God must love them. They do not care about God's character. No, not one. If they cared about God's character a long time ago, they would have written a book in defense of God's love for Satan. Right. Because Satan is a more glorious being than all of us combined. But why don't they worry about God loving the devil? Because they don't really care about God's character or his nature. All they care about is that they can fall to sleep in their big piece of cotton candy and go to heaven when they die, no matter how they live. They cannot stand the God of the Bible. For they've imagined a God to their own liking. And the Bible tells us that. Mm -hmm. The Bible tells us in Psalm 50 that sometimes God will be silent so that men will think that he is like them. But he tells men to repent of such wickedness before he tears them in pieces in Psalm 50. They cannot stand the God of the Bible. What men may teach about God, though, doesn't mean a thing, because men teach a whole lot of strange things about God today. Men teach there is no God. They're liars. Men teach that God is a woman. They're liars. Men teach that God watches us from a distance. They're the deistic liars that were some of our nation's founding fathers. They teach that God couldn't send anyone to hell. Men teach those things today. Those things, those doctrines are on the rise. What I'm teaching you this morning is on the fall, is on the decline, and very few believe it any longer. There's only one absolute, complete, and final answer to the character and nature of God, and that's found in the Bible. Amen. It's scripture only. You can't look at a rose and tell the character of God. If you're going to look at a rose, then why don't you look at a National Geographic special where a lion is tearing a crippled and handicapped wildebeest to pieces 
while it breathes out its last. If you're going to look at the creation, then look at all of the creation. If you're going to look at your little baby cooing in the crib and think that God must love every creature, then why don't you get some special and look at all those little starving babies that were brought into existence in the continent of Africa that will, all, that will die from starvation with flies crawling on their eyeballs Amen. by the same God. That's right. If you're going to look at a rose, look at a Venus flytrap too. And feel sorry for the fly. Mm -hmm. Look at all of God's creation. The next time you see a cripple, a paraplegic, a mongoloid, look at him and realize that God created. Right. He is a holy and a terrible God. And I want to tell you something right now in case you're wondering about anything I've said. God made man perfect. Yep, right. God put a perfect man in a perfect world and said, live forever. He gave that man a perfect wife. Man rebelled against God. Mm -hmm. right. Man defied his creator. Man said, I hate you. I hate your laws. I'm going to eat the fruit off the one tree you told me I couldn't eat from in spite of the fact that you told me I could eat of every other tree of the garden, including the tree of life. I hate you. I hate you telling me what I have to do. I hate your promises that if I eat this, I'm going to die. And I'm going to eat it anyway. Remember that about God. He made us perfect. He made Adam and Eve perfect and put them in a perfect world. And all the imperfection and all the pain and all the suffering and all the death and all the dying that is in this world is because that is what men chose in their rebellion against their creator. Amen. Don't resent the Lord. He looked on everything that he had made and said it's very good. Right. What men may wish God to be doesn't have any connection to truth. What you have in your heart that tells you what God must be like comes from this source document, comes from this source. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Amen. No man can know how deceitful and depraved his own heart is. And if you are listening to your heart to tell you that God couldn't be like that, you are wrong because that heart is the most deceitful thing in the universe and it is desperately wicked. Right. The natural creation only shows God's glory, his handiwork, his eternal power, and his Godhead. It doesn't show us the details about his character, which the rest of the Bible does. If you go to Psalm 19, it tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. You can see God's glory and you can see what an intricate creator and designer he was by looking at the natural creation. That's Psalm 19. If you go to Romans 1, you can see that he has eternal power. Right. And he has a Godhead. He has the character and nature of a divine being. But that's all you'll see. Right. The rest of does God love? Whom does God love? How does he love? And what fruit does that love bear? we must find in the Word of God. And so it's the Word of God that we want to go. We live in a feminized generation that's watered down everything to lukewarm vomit. They've watered down everything. What I am teaching this morning used to be taught. If you want to find references from just a couple hundred, 300, 400, and 500 years ago, all you have to do is go into the confessions of faith and see that Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and many others believe what I'm going to teach you this morning about the character and nature of God. Yes. And they knew how to answer the question, does God love everybody? Right. They could answer the question easily. Even the Methodists knew it. Awesome quotes <laughs> on the Wesley brothers. That's a mind blower. But that doesn't matter because we don't care what the Wesleys believed 
and we don't care what John Knox and John Calvin believed, and we don't care what Henry V believed. All we care about is what does the Bible tell us about God? Amen. Those of you that are listening to me, or watching a video, addressing this subject is very difficult. There's part of me that wishes God was a great big puff of cotton candy. But that part of me that wishes that is my sin nature because it wants to be able to get away with sin and not be held accountable by a holy and terrible God. Right. Addressing this subject makes me feel like Noah, the man who came out of his house one day after having devotions and told his neighbors that it was going to start raining soon and the rain would come until it covered the highest mountains. They thought he was insane. But he was true Amen. and right. Amen. I feel like Columbus, before Ferdinand and others, and his whole generation, saying, I want to sail west because the earth is round, and I'm going to go east by going west. And the whole earth thought he was crazy, but he set sail west. He didn't find the east, but he found something that he didn't know existed. But the whole world thought he was a nutcase, except a few. I feel like Peter addressing the elders of the Jews in Jerusalem 50 days after they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and saying to them, I want you to know something. Jesus of Nazareth, that you crucified and that you buried, has risen from the dead, and he's the Messiah, and you were his wicked murderers. That message didn't go over very well. That's what I feel like. Because dealing with this subject grates on people's nerves that haven't heard the Word of God. All they've heard is a couple candy canes pulled out of the Word of God where they love the sound of the words rather than the sense of the words. The assumptions that men make and the presumptions that men make and the default mechanisms they have on this subject are unbelievably deeply rooted. They just presume that God has to love everybody because they think mankind is lovable and they think God has to love everything. But like I said, and I want to say it again, they do not care about the character of God or they would be arguing that the Lord must love the devil. And he doesn't. We need to root out the sound of words and replace them with the sense of words. John 3.16 fits the rest of the Word of God just like every other verse does. But listen, if you've been taught one thing all of your life, it's hard to let go of the sound of the words. Follow me. There's one billion Catholics in the world today, and to teach them the truth about the Lord's Supper forces them to have a completely different view of these words. This is my body. They have looked at those words all of their lives, this is my body, as being literal words that Jesus was holding his body in his fingers when he was holding a piece of torn bread. All their lives they have come forth in their superstitious veneration of a pagan doctrine, closed their eyes, stuck out their tongue, and a priest has put a wafer on their tongue and said, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God and they thought they were eating God because they thought wrongly and they thought wrongly all their lives so they assumed it and men have quoted the words of John 3:16 to themselves until they've got the sound of it ingrained in their minds but they don't know the sense of the words they don't know how to fit that verse with a verse like we read this morning in the reading of our 11th Psalm and so instead of fitting the verses together they just ignore Psalm 5, Psalm 11, and all the other places in the Bible that talk about the hatred of God and just keep stroking their little candy cane in their mouth. In and out, in and out, sucking off another little, le le another little layer of sugar for their depraved little hearts to deceive themselves and to think that all is well because God loves everybody. You know, those that believe you can lose your salvation have a verse. Galatians 5, 4 says, ye are fallen from grace. Now they have to relearn those words 
Because the sound of those words sound like you can fall from grace. Because it says, ye are fallen from grace. But you can't fall from grace. But to have it taught and explained sounds like more work than to simply believe the sound of the words, especially when you've been taught the sound of the words all your life. Are you with me? Yes. It's very hard. And so there are people that are going to listen to this tape or watch this video, and it will be hard for them. And I want them to know it is hard for me to preach it. I know that I'm fighting an uphill battle. But 2 Corinthians chapter 10 tells me that the weapons of my warfare are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And the stronghold is the citadel of your mind. And I want to tear it down. I have grappling hooks with me this morning, and I want to rip down the citadel of your mind and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That is a minister's job. A minister's job is not to make you feel good. A minister's job is not to entertain you. A minister's job is to make war against you. Now that's the Bible. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. You can stop the tape and listen and go read it. That's my job, to make war against the imaginations and every high thought that lifts itself up against the knowledge of God and to bring it down into captivity. And that's what we're going to do this morning. That's what we are doing this morning. What are some of the consequences of this heresy that believes that God loves everybody indiscriminately without exception and without distinction? What are some of the consequences of it? There's no fear of God in the earth. Who would fear a sugar daddy like that? When the whole... Does the Bible ever mention the fear of the Lord? Twice? Hundreds. Hundreds of times. From beginning to end. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. That's the conclusion of looking at life and trying to figure out what should man do in this world. What's the conclusion? Fear God. Fear God. But there is no fear of God because why in the world would you fear a big piece of cotton candy? All you want to do is grab a handful and eat it. And it melts down to nothing. I'm going to give you some candy, but in the Bible it's called the pure honeycomb. And it's a whole lot sweeter than sugar, especially spun sugar that's nothing but a bunch of air. I'll give you honeycomb to suck on. It's the honeycomb of Romans 8, 38 and 39 that I began with this morning. For I am persuaded. Paul was persuaded. Because see, preaching is a mental activity and hearing is a mental activity. Paul said, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, and he lists a whole lot of other things, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's honey. That's honey. If God only loved his elect... And everyone that he loved will certainly make it to heaven and enjoy heaven with him for all of eternity. That is love that is meaningful. That is love to be excited about. That's a heavenly father to adore and to run to his knee. And that's a savior to be thankful for. But if most of those that God loved and Christ died for are in hell, suffering eternal torment, that is no father. What kind of a father is that? That's a derelict father. And that's a worthless savior. Because he didn't save when he said he came to save. There's no fear of God in the earth. There's ignorance of God's holiness and righteousness. How many sermons in this city will be taught this morning on the holiness of God? Very few. It leads to a whole lot of superficial professions of religion. Because all you have to do is invite Jesus into your heart. He loves you, wants to save you. All you got to do is invite him into your heart. So you invite him into your heart. Now I'm saved. And you go out and you can live any way you want to. We have scads of millions of superficial professions of religion. There's a lack of zeal for holy living. There's a neglect of discipline, the church and home. There's a weak and begging ministry. The end justifies the means, evangelism. A degraded view of salvation. Universalism and no hell doctrines on the rise. Universalism, everyone will be saved. No hell doctrines is there's no hell because God couldn't send anyone to hell. Those are popular today. It's a candy cane use of Bible verses. And it leads to lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Because after all, God wants you to have a happy life. How can we benefit by answering the question the Bible way? No, God does not love everybody. He loves his chosen elect. And his love for those chosen elect will certainly result in their eternal and complete salvation. 
What does that do for us? How can we benefit by knowing it? We can worship God in truth. Because God seeks those that will worship Him in truth. We can serve Him with reverence and godly fear. Because this kind of a God is worthy of reverence and godly fear. We can understand the Bible without confusion. We can bask in a glorious salvation. We can see through the fallacy of an offer of salvation. We can see the commendation that God gave to his love. God commended his love. Do you know that? God commended his love. God praised, lifted up, exalted his love for us to look at it and say that is a high and glorious thing. And he didn't do it by offering it to all without it accomplishing anything. He did it by giving it to his elect, and it accomplished everything. Amen. It'll motivate us to extreme service for him. The Apostle Paul said, for the love of Christ constraineth me. Amen. He understood that love. We'll know that we can never be separated from it. We'll know that if God loves us, and there's ways that we can easily tell that, especially if it's shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit, you'll never be separated from it. And we'll be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you remember how you're filled with all the fullness of God in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19? By knowing the height, length, depth, and breadth of the love of Christ. I told you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 5, 5. It's time now to look at Psalm 5, 5. For this morning, let's, let's ask five questions and answer them. The main question that we're dealing with in this sermon, and maybe another, is does God love everybody? That's what we want to answer from the Bible. Does God love everybody? Let's answer that one by asking some more. Does God love sinners? Let's go to Psalm 5.5. I'm going to start reading in verse 4. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. That is the word of God. Psalm 5, 4, thou art not a God. He is going to clear up some confusion about the character and being and nature of God. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. God does not take pleasure in any wickedness. He cannot stand it because he is holy and righteous, as we read earlier this morning in Psalm 11. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. There is nothing evil in heaven. There is nothing sinful in heaven. Everything that defiles is kept outside the gate of that holy city. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. When God sits in judgment... And the foolish come before him when he sits as judge. And a foolish man is there who has lived his life foolishly, who thinks foolishly, who speaks foolishly. He'll not stand in the sight of God. He'll be out of my presence. Get that out of here. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. This is the word of God. Love it. He's a great God. I'm thankful to serve a great God. I'm thankful to worship a great God. I'm thankful that great God called me to preach. But most of all, I'm thankful that that great God set his love on me. Because it took that great of a God to save someone as bad as me. To reach down all the way from his throne in heaven and his holy temple and to find a very unholy person and to save him. Love this God. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Now see, that's a whole lot plainer than John 3.16. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And the whole argument of that verse turns on their presumption that the word world has to mean every single descendant of Adam without exception or distinction. Their whole use of the verse has to turn on that presumption. But John uses the word world in a very wide latitude, and usually it's a very limited section of humanity. Why don't they presume that in Luke 2, 1, where it says in the the, uh, reign of Caesar Augustus, a decree went out 
that all the world should be taxed. Well, if we look at all of the descendants from Adam, without exception or distinction, and we arrive at a number of 65 billion, and we look at how many Caesar Augustus taxed, 117,000, there's a wide disparity, but it says all the world, because God expects you to study your Bibles and not use the sound of words, but find the sense of those words. This verse tells us something. It doesn't use the word world. It doesn't use some vague term. It says, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Verse 6, thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. A person that speaks leasing is a liar. They speak lies. Thou shalt destroy liars. The Bible says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. <clears throat> the simplicity of the gospel in Christ is amazing. If you're wondering at all, how does this fit together with John 3.16 and other verses in the Bible? How do you, being a liar, get to heaven? It's all so simple because it's all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Because he actually did pay for sins. He actually did pay for every sin. He actually did perfect forever them that are sanctified. He actually did reconcile us to God. He actually did redeem us. He actually did sanctify us. He actually did make an atonement for us. Amen. He actually is a propitiation. He actually does forgive sins. Amen. And if you're one of God's elect, he's never seen nor considered any of your lies. Right. Never. All liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. But you are not a liar. If he chose you in Christ before the world began because he's always seen you in Christ, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. We want to stay right here in Psalm 5.5 because we're asking a question, does God love sinners? God can't love sinners. God is holy and God cannot love an unholy object. God doesn't love sinners. God hates sinners. Can't you read it in Psalm 5.5? Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. It says in the last part of verse 6, The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. A bloody man's a violent man. Remember Psalm 11? A bloody man's a violent man, a deceitful man's a liar. All murderers and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Does this make sense with the rest of the Bible? God hates all murderers, all liars, and all workers of iniquity. Will Jesus Christ say to many in the last day, Depart from me, and what does he call them? Would you help me, please? Ye workers of iniquity. I wonder why he doesn't say, depart from me, ye blood-bought, fully forgiven, sanctified, redeemed, and justified sinners saved by grace. I wonder why he doesn't say that, since Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of their sins. Because they're still workers of iniquity, because they've always been workers of iniquity, and they're left in that condition. As we just sang before this sermon from that hymn by Isaac Watts, the Lord God creator, the potter, reached down to the mass of clay that was made up of sinful man and chose some to be vessels of mercy and some to be vessels of dishonor. Vessels of wrath. That's what the Bible teaches us. We're answering a question, does God love sinners? Not a chance. Because Psalm 5.5 says, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 11 Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. There, there are the workers of iniquity again, they're called wicked here, and the soul of God hates them, Psalm 11, 5. Don't deceive yourself. Don't lie to yourself, and don't let others lie to you. Don't let a Girl Scout manual tell you that God loves everybody. The Bible says, the wicked and him that loveth violence, the soul of God hates. Psalm 11 and verse 5. Verse 6, upon the wicked, he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and in horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. God smiles upon the upright, and he gives a horrible cup to the wicked. This is Psalm 11. So we answer the question, does God love sinners? No. God hates all sinners. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. The question is answered from the word of God. Question number two. 
And we want to turn to Matthew chapter 7. Question number two. The first question was, does God love sinners? And we found out, no, he doesn't. He hates all workers of iniquity. He hates all sinners. The second question is, does God love those he does not know? Does God love those he does not know? Look at what Matthew 7.23 tells us in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that he will say in the great day of judgment, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus Christ will say, I never knew you. Now that does not mean he never knew of them. That does not mean he never knew about them. That does not mean he did not know every detail of their lives. What does it mean when it says, I never knew you? No in the Bible is a word of affection and favor from one party to another. When the Bible says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she bare a son named Cain, is it hard for you to figure out what it means that Adam knew what Eve, his wife? He had an affectionate, favorable, and intimate relationship with Eve. He went to bed with her, and in the intimacy of the marriage bed, they conceived a child, and that child was named Cain. The word know in the Bible can mean just an awareness or knowledge of facts, but it can also mean an affectionate, personal, tender, and intimate relationship. Right. And there is no way that Jesus Christ is saying to the wicked, I didn't know anything about you because he says, ye that work iniquity. He knew all about their iniquities. But he didn't have an affectionate relationship with them. So how are you going to tell me that God and his son Jesus Christ love all these workers of iniquity when he's going to say to them, I never knew you. Oh, they'll, they'll quote this verse in a sermon. They'll blow right over it for the sound of the words, I never knew you. But they never stop to think, what does it really mean if God says, I never knew you? You don't have any relationship with me. I have no affection for you. We have nothing in common. Get out of my sight, you workers of iniquity. You don't like my words? You don't mind them when they're spoken to Satan? In fact, you get kind of excited. You love hearing about the stronger man coming in and wrecking the palace of the strong man. You love to see the devil trembling on his face before the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. Why do you love that so much? Why do you enjoy that so much, and yet you want God to be a big sugar daddy in the sky? The answer is simple. You are totally obsessed with yourself, not the character of God. The character of God is that he is holy, and he has chosen only to know some, only to know some in the earth. By the use of that word know in a sense of affection and a favorable and intimate relationship. In Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, the prophet says, of all the nations of the earth, God said to the prophet, I have known only you of all the nations of the earth. Now that knowledge there is not that he didn't know about the other nations. He only had an affectionate relationship with Israel. Right. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. That was his affectionate personal relationship with Israel. So in answer to the second question, does God love those he does not know? Impossible. Impossible. In fact, for Jesus to say, I never knew you, is to say, I never loved you. Third question, does God love those who are not his children? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Does God love those who are not his children? You know, Jesus said that there were many that he met during his lifetime that he said were children of the devil. Does God love the children of the devil equal, like, the same as he loves his own children? No. Look at what the Bible says. Everybody knows about Hebrews 12. Everybody knows that it says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. But does anybody ever read the words and think about them? Does anybody get past the sound of the words and look at the sense of them? What does it say? Hebrews 12 and verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son 
whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Sorry if you don't like the language. Take it up with the Lord in heaven if you ever make it there, if you want to question his word. That's his choice of words, not mine. Hebrews 12, 6 through 8. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Everyone that God loves, he chastens. Does God chasten everybody? No way. Therefore, right here, in the disciplinary process, the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father is proof that he does not love everybody. Because he does not love those that are not his children. In fact, he calls them bastards, and they are outside of his loving treatment. See, the sunshine out there, and the rain that falls on the evil and the good, is his general kindness on the earth that includes his elect. But there is no special love there for them, because he never chastens them. Remember what we read in Psalm 11. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked... And him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. There's a great contrast made. The chastening of God, according to 1 Corinthians 11, is so that we will not be condemned with the world. There is a group of men that God is going to condemn, and they deserve that condemnation as we deserve it. But those that he has chosen to be his sons, he loves them, and he chastens them, and a proof of his love for them is chastening. And chastening is the evidence of his love. And if he doesn't chasten them, then they are bastards, they're not sons, and they are not loved. So, in answer to the question, does God love those who are not his children? No. Because it's only his children that he chastens, the rest are bastards. And those that he chastens are the only ones that he loves. Because for whom he loveth, he chasteneth. I hope you can see it. Amen. That it's very plain. Right. Question number four. Does God love those who are not in Christ? Let's look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Does God love those who are not in Christ? No. Because when I look in Romans 8, 38 and 39, I come to the bottom part of verse 39. It says that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is in Christ Jesus the Lord. And if a person is not in Christ Jesus the Lord, it is impossible for God to love them because the love of God is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Fourth question, does God love those who are not in Christ? No. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. The question is, does God love those who are not in Christ? No, he doesn't, because the love of God is in Christ Jesus, as we saw in Romans 8, 39. How about Ephesians 1, 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All spiritual blessings from God the Father are in Christ. There is no spiritual blessing outside of Jesus Christ. If a person is outside of Christ, they were not chosen in him. They have not been adopted by him. They have not been born again to be in him. If they're outside of Jesus Christ, there is no spiritual blessing for them because all the spiritual blessings of heaven are in Christ Jesus. Without Jesus Christ, this whole race is damned to an eternity in hell. That's right. Justly so. Amen. Our first father did it for all of us. And if you think that God didn't give you a chance, he gave you a better than fair chance. He put you in the Garden of Eden in a perfect man as your representative in a perfect world with just one little commandment to keep. And you defied your creator. And you've defied him a million times since. So why bark against it? Our race is damned outside of Christ Jesus. Because all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus. Does God love those who are not in Christ? Not a chance, because the love of God is in Christ Jesus, and the love of God, which is a spiritual blessing, is in Christ Jesus. Question number five. 
Does God love those who are going to be sent to hell for their sins? Let's go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. Can you imagine that the doctrine taught in most churches today is that the hordes in hell are loved by God as much as those in heaven? There is no difference between God's love for those in hell as there is for those in heaven. That is what they all teach. If God loves everybody, then he loves those in hell just as much as those in heaven. Those in hell have as much right to sing the deep, deep love of Jesus, as I said earlier, as those in heaven. That's what they teach. God loves everybody. God has loved all men equally. God wants to save all men equally. Jesus did everything for all men equally. And the Holy Spirit did everything equally for all men. Then why are they in hell? Suffering for their sins. I thought Jesus paid for their sins on the cross. Why are they suffering for their sins? So the question is, does God love those who will be sent to hell for their sins? I read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, herein is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen. The Bible is special, brethren. The Bible is special. The Bible is not a love letter to the human race. The Bible is a love letter to God's children. The Bible is special. Israel only had the word of God. Because they only, of all the families of the earth, did God love. Here in his love, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the peacemaker. That is the offering and the sacrifice that made it one, God and sinful man, in his elect. He was the propitiation. He was not the propitiation for anyone in hell, because obviously God did not pay for their sins. Let's come back to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 32. Either Jesus Christ was the propitiation for the sins of some men, or there's no one in hell. If Jesus Christ was the propitiation for the sins of all men, then there's no one in hell. But that is not what the Bible tells us. Romans 8.32 He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? They say that Jesus Christ died for all men. Do you know what this verse says? That whomever Jesus Christ died for, they get all the things that God could ever give because if he spared not his own son, which was the greatest sacrifice he could make, how much more shall he not also with him freely give everything else? So those in hell obviously didn't get anything from God. Obviously, Jesus Christ was not given for them. Obviously, God did not love them. Because obviously, they are in hell, separated from the love of God, which just a few verses later says, it is impossible to be separated from him and his love, which is in Christ Jesus. We've asked five questions. Does God love sinners? No. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Does God love those he doesn't know? No. Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Does God love those that are not his children? No. He never chastens them, which is... Tell me about the love of God. If it's just as much true for those in hell as those in heaven, describe it to me. Tell me about it. Let me bask in its warmth and its glow. Let me enjoy it. That's blasphemy. That is profane. Because men will be separated from that love when they're in hell. They never had any of it. That love is in those that are going to be in his presence for eternity. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, then how can God love anyone 
If God hates all sinners, all workers of iniquity, how can God love anyone? There are precious answers, and it's all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. This Bible was not sent to everyone. I want you to go back and look at verse 32 of Romans 8 again. Would you please learn to read your Bibles? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Us all. Us all. Humanists. What's a humanist? It's an Arminian. Humanists want that us all to be the entire human race. He delivered Jesus up for us all because we all deserve it because we're all lovable because we're all human. And he has to love us. What does us all mean? If you wrote a letter and said, use the word us in it, should I expect to include anyone beyond the recipient of the letter and the one writing it? Should I jump in there and say that you're using the plural pronouns us and we to refer to everybody in the human race? If you write a letter to somebody and say, let us do this or let us do that, or we ought to do this or we ought to do that, or this has been done for us, do we understand it by its context that it's limited to the one writing and the one being written to? And so we have right here in Romans 8.32, He that spared on his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Us all. All you Romans and me. All you Romans and me. And of course, by reading the rest of the New Testament, all you Romans and me, and all others who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and in truth, and whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world like the Romans were. Us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's us again. It's the Romans, and it's Paul. Don't read beyond the context of the word of God. We need to answer the question, how can any God love anybody? And the answer is in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. And this is so precious, and this makes our doctrine so beautiful, and the love of God so special, and the work of Jesus Christ so glorious that the Apostle Paul would say, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. The devil sinned one time. The devil sinned one time, and God has reserved the devil and all the angels that went with him in chains unto everlasting torment. That is the God that we deal with. He knew all that before he ever created the devil. The devil is nothing but a creation for the manifestation of the glory of the great God. Amen. And I hope he's listening. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the devil for the day of evil. Amen. Even the wicked for the day of evil is what Proverbs 16.4 says. Romans 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord. And I wish you all believe this right now. This message makes obvious sense if you understand Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy. O oh Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things for thy pleasure, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Amen. That includes the devil and all wicked men. And we were a sinful race just like the devil and the angels that fell with him. We were a rebel race. God made us perfect. And we raised our fist in the face of God and said, I will not let you reign over me. This woman's more important to me than you. The devil's message is more important than what you've told me. I don't care that you've given me all the trees of the garden. I want this tree. I want it my way. Yep. Amen. Well, how is anyone saved? How does God love anybody? If God hates all workers of iniquity, Here's the answer, Ephesians 1, 3, we read a few minutes ago. Verse 3, we read a few minutes ago because it tells us that all blessings, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places are in Christ. Now, did it tell us that in verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know why he ought to be blessed? Because what we're about to read about him is incredibly glorious. And it degrades man down to the ground. Right. And it lifts God up as the sovereign judge of a, this universe. Amen. He is in his holy temple in Ephesians 1. He is on his throne in heaven in Ephesians 1. 
Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, and who are the us? The Ephesians and Paul, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Okay, now we embark on wrapping this thing up as to how God can love workers of iniquity. All blessings, spiritual blessings, are in Christ, which includes the love of God, which includes salvation, which includes our eternal inheritance, which includes every good thing that we will ever enjoy from the hand of God. It is in Christ Jesus, which tells you the only way he could ever give you anything good is because of Christ Jesus. All spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus. Now, how do we get in Christ Jesus, and when do we get in Christ Jesus? And what does being in Christ Jesus make us? And it's in the next verse. It's beautiful. This is what we believe. Don't despise the hatred of God. Love it. Because what it does is it exalts Jesus Christ to the high heaven as to what he did for us. According. How did God bless us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ? Here's how. According. Let me say it again. How did God bless us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ? According. The explanation is in the fourth verse. According as he, that is God the Father, hath chosen us, that is the Ephesians and Paul, the us of verse 3, in him, that is Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. Before God ever made the world, before God ever made Adam, before Adam ever had a chance to sin, God had already chosen a portion of the race he was going to make in Christ Jesus, so that from eternity he has always viewed his elect in Christ Jesus. His elect are the ones that are chosen. When we have a president that is elected, it is the president that the people chose. He chose us in Christ before the world began. Before Adam and Eve sinned, he chose us by name, and put our names in the book of life in Christ, so that he has always viewed us in Christ Jesus, where all spiritual blessings are, and we will certainly get them because he has chosen us in him. And he's already given them to us. He has already blessed us with all these spiritual blessings because they're guaranteed because they're in Christ, who is our surety. They will certainly come to pass. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Amen. Amen. Why did God choose us in Christ Jesus? That we should be holy. Are we workers of iniquity? No, we're holy. We're in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy. No, the elect of God are not workers of iniquity in any legal sense because Jesus paid for their works of iniquity and God has always viewed them as being holy and without blame. There is nothing to blame them for. He loves them with an everlasting love from eternity where he chose them in Christ Jesus before he ever even made Adam. This is what the Bible teaches. This is the word of God. This is the doctrine which is according to godliness. This doctrine will move men to love God, fear God, and to appreciate what Jesus Christ did for them and to serve him. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. No, not workers of iniquity, holy. And God has viewed us from that way since before the world began. That is what makes all the difference. That's why you can read a verse that says, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. And take it just as it is stated. He hates all workers of iniquity because his elect are not workers of iniquity and they were not workers of iniquity because he chose them in Christ. They would have been if he had not chose them in Christ. But that uncreated mass of fallen man that he knew would fall, that he put in the Garden of Eden where they could fall for the manifestation of his glory and of his wrath, he chose out of that mass Vessels of honor. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's why we sang the potter and the clay. And we come to Ephesians 1, 4, and we see, 
that he has chosen us to be holy and without blame before him. What are the last two words of that verse? In love. Does God hate all workers of iniquity? Absolutely. Does God hate those who are not his children? Absolutely. Does God hate those he does not know? Absolutely. Does God hate those that are outside of Christ? Yes. Those will be sent to hell and separated from him for eternity? Yes. But guess what? We're in Christ. We're holy and without blame. And we're there in love. Ephesians 1.4 is beautiful. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God loves all of his elect because he chose them in Christ before the world began and put them in a substitute that would die for them. They were never considered workers of iniquity by the great God. Right. And he fashioned the earth and brought forth Adam and Eve, watched them sin, knowing they would, purposing through it all a grand display of his great glory and grace and his wrath and his power. Does Romans 9 teach us that plainly? In verses 22 through 24, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared into glory? You mean not offered glory? Afore prepared unto glory. And when was that a four? Before the foundation of the world. Amen. Well, that sounds so good. That sounds so good. It makes sense to me. If God is as holy as the Bible says, and if God were to treat the human race like he treated the devil and the fallen angels, then God should hate all men. And God should send all men to hell. That sounds fair. That sounds reasonable. But brethren, God isn't fair. Thanks be to God, he is not fair. He is gracious and he is merciful. And the way he can be gracious and merciful and still be just is a substitute, is our obedient older brother who came into this world and laid down his life for us and suffered the wrath and hatred and violence of God. And he had the portion of the cup of the wicked. Do you understand that? Amen. Do you know what he said? The mother, of the mother of James and John came to Jesus one time and said, Lord, I want my two boys. After all, my two boys are the only important boys on all the face of the earth. No one else counts compared to my boys. That's how all mothers think. Sentimental drivel. That mother came to Jesus and said, I want my two boys to sit at your side when you're in heaven. Jesus said, you don't even know what you're talking about. Yep. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I have a cup to drink. Now, he did give them a baptism, and he did give them a cup, but no one drank the cup that Jesus Christ drank. Amen. And you know, for those of you that have lived long and have been around here for a while, you know I once preached a sermon to you about the baptism and cup of Christ because Jesus Christ was tossed into waves the likes of which we cannot even imagine. Right. And it was the waves of God's wrath rolling over his soul. And he drank a cup, and you know what the Bible says? He drank the dregs of it. He got to the bottom, and that filthy, bitter stuff that's on the bottom of the cup, he downed that as well. That is my Savior. Amen. And that is your Savior. Amen. And that is how God loves. And he did not drink that cup for any man and have that man be lost. He said, My Father sent me into this world, and this is the will of God that sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Amen. Jesus Christ raised up every single one that was chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And they are holy and without blame before God in love. God has always loved them because they are not workers of iniquity. This is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is redemption. This is election. This is salvation. This is the love of God. And no, no one will ever be separated from that love because that Jesus Christ who drained that cup and who was baptized in the ocean of God's wrath is at the right hand of God ever living to make sure that every single one of us makes it safe into heaven. And the Bible says that if we'll make our calling and election sure, an abundant entrance will be ministered unto us. Amen. Does God love sinners? No. Because the elect are not viewed as sinners 
in the holy decrees of God because he chose us in Christ before the world to be holy and without blame before yeah. the world began. Amen. How about those that are not sons? How do we become the sons of God? Do you want to see it? Then you're going to have to do something difficult and read the next verse of Ephesians chapter 1. He, he cannot love and he does not love those that are not his sons. Well, then how do we become the sons of God? Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, Amen. to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Amen. All of that is the will of God. This is what we teach. This is what we believe. A God that loves, yes, he loves those that he put in his son Jesus Christ who came to die for them. A God that loves his children. But how did he get children? He predestinated them to adoption. Yep. A God that loves only those in Christ. And how did they get in Christ? They were chosen in Christ and they were made accepted in the beloved. Oh, brethren, we don't accept him That's right. to get into the beloved. We were chosen in the beloved and made acceptable by him. Right. What a difference. And all of that is to put us in a standing before God in love. You know what the Bible says about us? I'll make a covenant with the house of Israel. I'll make a covenant with them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Amen. Have we all sinned? Oh, yeah. But there was one that came and paid for every one of those sins. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you were born before the cross, at the time of the cross, or 2,000 years after the cross, because in the purpose of God, it was all as good as done. Yep. Because Jesus Christ was gonna come and do it. All the sins were paid for. Their sins and their iniquities, now listen to the words, brethren. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Amen. And yet he's gonna say to many, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And who is found in the lake of fire according to Revelation 21.8? All liars, all the fearful, all the unbelieving, all whoremongers, all murderers, all sorcerers, all idolaters are in the lake of fire. Why are they suffering for their sins in the lake of fire? Because he has made a remembrance of their sins. Just like he makes a remembrance of the sins of the devil and the fallen angels. Does God love everybody? No. He doesn't love the devil. He doesn't love the fallen angels. And he doesn't love fallen man outside of Christ Jesus. Right. But he loves all those that are in Christ Jesus. He loves his sons. And they will never be separated from his love. They are his sons. And they were predestinated to it. And we were chosen to this end before the world began. That God could love us. And we stand before him in love. The love of God is an incredibly precious thing. Amen. If you are walking in the Spirit, the love of God will shed abroad in your heart the fact that God loves you. Right. Romans 5.5 5. If you are walking in the Spirit, you can know by faith that there is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation upon you and that God loves you. Mm -hmm. You can make your calling and election sure and by making your election sure, which is right here described in Ephesians 1, that makes the love of God sure to you. We have the highest motive to live holy lives and to make our calling and election sure. And if we do, we shall never fall. But an entrance will be ministered unto us abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The issue of Bible evangelism and Bible preaching is not to promiscuously throw out that God loves everybody. It is not found that way in the Bible. The word love in any of its 13 conjugations and forms is not found in the entire book of Acts. The promiscuous scattering of the love of God to everybody does not promote the fear of God, nor is it Bible evangelism because it's not the truth. Right. The issue that you ought to be asking this morning is not whether God loves me. Do you love and fear the great creator God yourself? Yeah. 
Because if you love God, you can make this claim. We love him because he first loved us. Do not ask if he loves you. Ask if you love him. And serve him. Believe on him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believe his word. And work righteousness. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. And if you do righteousness, then you are righteous. You're born again. You're one of his children. And he's loved you with an everlasting love from before the world began. May Jesus Christ be praised.